Uh, well, friends, uh, the headline read, Could Meghan Markle End Britain's Royal Family? Could Meghan Markle End Britain's Royal Family? Uh, I don't know whether you uh, saw, but uh, the Royal Family have been in the spotlight this week. Uh, Prince Harry uh, got engaged to uh, a woman by the name of Meghan Markle. And uh, it seems that some people are convinced uh, that this woman is uh, uh, the greatest threat to the House of Windsor that there has been for some time. Uh, They give various reasons. Uh, It's because she's American. Uh, Some say it's because she's a divorcee. Uh, Others say uh, that it's because of her family background. Uh, One tabloid uh, quoted an anonymous butler in Buckingham Palace who said, I know that Her Majesty the Queen and the Prince of Wales are not happy with her. Uh, I think that's enough tabloid gossip for for one morning. Uh, But it seems like in the the eyes of some people, here is a serious threat uh, that threatens to bring down one of the most uh, famous and important and powerful families on earth. Uh, Now, we've been looking at the story of Joseph, as uh, Mark has has, uh, alluded to, um, in the book of Genesis. And uh, last week, if you remember, the action was firmly fixed on the person of Joseph as we saw him rise from being in prison after refusing the sexual advances of Potiphar's wife and uh, rising to uh, the dizzying heights of being second in command uh, to Pharaoh uh, in all of Egypt. However, in chapter 42, I want you to see that the camera lens now zooms in, uh, not just on Joseph, but in fact uh, on the whole family of Jacob. Uh, This and following chapters are really about the family uh, of of Israel, the family of Jacob, which is under under terrible threat. Uh, And and friends, I just want you to um, consider for a moment uh, just how serious a thing it is for this particular family to be under threat. For this isn't the story of just some random and obscure little family in the Middle East who may come to an end. Uh, No, it's a story about the family of Israel, uh, God's people. And you only need to uh, get your Bible telescopes out, so to speak, and uh, look forward at what comes out of Israel Israel, to notice that if this family is threatened now, then it is a huge deal. Without Israel, there would be no Moses. Without Israel, there would be no Exodus. Without Israel, there would be no kings. Without Israel, there would be no David. Without Israel, there would be no Jesus, the Messiah. And without Israel, there would be no cross, no resurrection, no forgiveness of sins, no new creation. And so a lot hangs on the future of this particular family. But what is uh, the threat that we see in this chapter to this family? Well, firstly, you can see there that there is an external threat, isn't there? Uh, The external threat is the famine that has come to the land of Canaan uh, where Jacob and his sons are living. Uh, Here is a family that is facing starvation and death because there is no food. 
And so, in desperation, in verse 1, you see that Jacob learns that there is grain uh, in the land of Egypt. And in verse 2, what he does is he sends his sons uh, to go down to Egypt uh, to bring back food for the family. So that is the external threat. But secondly, as we've seen all along, there is also something internal that threatens to tear apart this family. And that internal threat is the deep divisions that are apparent among its members. Uh, You can see this, for example, in Jacob himself. Uh, If you remember, uh, Jacob is someone who shows great favoritism uh, towards some in his family. Uh, It's interesting that uh, if you trace through the account of Jacob, uh, you uh, see earlier in Genesis that his father also played favorites. Uh, His father, uh, Isaac, loved Esau more than he loved Jacob. And uh, it appears here that the apple hasn't fallen too far from the tree because uh, Jacob starts playing favorites with his children as well. Uh, We saw in chapter 37 that uh, he has a favorite son called Joseph, whom he uh, gives a a, a tailored Armani suit to, uh, which makes all the other brothers jealous. And even after Jacob believes Joseph to have died, it it seems like he still hasn't learnt his lesson. Because you can see there in in verse 4, have a look with me at verse 4, that he's still playing favourites with his uh, other youngest son, who is named Benjamin. And uh, in verse 4, he refuses to send Benjamin down to Egypt in case he dies. You see, all the other sons are expendable. They can die, but not this Benjamin, not my favourite. However, the sons of Jacob are not any better, are they? Uh, Remember, they're the ones who were actually willing to murder uh, their youngest brother, Joseph, uh, in previous chapters. And uh, in chapter 42, I think we are left wondering uh, what these brothers actually think of Benjamin, who has now become the father's favourite. What do they think of him? Uh, What will they do to him in the future? Uh, They're the sort of questions that that arise. However, sons of Jacob are also presented in this chapter as people who don't really tell the truth, even though for uh, a lot of the chapter they're insisting that they are honest men. And uh, you can see this uh, if you have a look at verses 29 to 35. Uh, Verses 29 to 35 uh, is where... Uh, the brothers come back uh, from Egypt to Jacob, uh, their father, and uh, they give a report to their father about what has just happened in Egypt. Now, uh, at first glance, it seems like they're simply stating the facts of what happened in Egypt. If you look very closely, you can learn a lot about these brothers from the way they sometimes twist the facts and sometimes leave details out of their report. And so, for example, in the report, uh, the brothers make it sound that when they were in Egypt, they protested uh, their honesty uh, before they gave Joseph the details about their family, and in particular about uh, back in Canaan. But uh, if you have a look at verse 11, it actually happened the other way around. Uh, It seems like uh, they're trying to uh, say to 
their father that they withheld this information for as long as they could in order to uh, come off in a better light. Uh, further, did you notice that they intentionally leave out certain details? Um, I wonder whether you can just turn to the person sitting next to you and uh, exercise your mind and see what sort of details they leave out in that, uh, in that account. Uh, can you do that for a minute with the people sitting next to you? And uh, we'll, we'll come back together and see. Friends, uh, what uh, do they twist and what details do they, do they leave out? Uh, I wonder whether we can have a, a few brave volunteers... No? Shall I tell you? Yep, <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, they don't tell Jacob that Simeon is in custody. Uh, nor do they tell him that Joseph has threatened to execute Simeon if they don't return with Benjamin. Uh, rather, the lie in verse 34 about Joseph promising to let them trade in the land if they bring Benjamin back. Uh, That was never part of the the discussion earlier. And they don't tell Jacob about the money they found in in one of the brothers' sacks of grain. Uh, You see, what we see here are a group of brothers who are not as honest as uh, what they seem to uh, profess uh, throughout this text. Uh, Now, this is something I noticed before, but uh, one of the commentators, uh, full of insight, um, brought this to uh, my attention. But... Did you notice that Jacob, at the end of this chapter, also seems to be deeply suspicious of his sons? Why do I say that? Well, you can see there in verse 36 that Jacob laments that Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. He doesn't really know that. Uh, The really interesting thing here is that in each of these cases, there is money involved, isn't there? So if you remember back to Joseph, uh, what probably happened is that uh, the brothers brought back money and uh, they told their father that Joseph was no more. Uh, now they've come back to Jacob without Simeon with bags of money. I wonder whether Jacob is actually thinking that his sons are starting to knock one another off one by one for money. Uh, you see... Uh, This is a deeply dysfunctional and divided family. Uh, But I think uh, what takes the cake uh, in this family is actually Reuben's reaction to all this. Uh, Notice that he begs his father to let Benjamin go to Egypt with him. And he says in verse 37 that if he doesn't bring Benjamin back safely, well, what will he do? He'll kill his two sons. Now, uh, I just want you to ask yourself, what kind of a family uh, suggests that if you kill your two grandchildren, then grandpa will be happy with that? Uh, There is something seriously wrong uh, in this particular family. And friends, uh, I I just wonder whether this picture of Israel, uh, the people of God in Genesis is a bit of a reflection on the church, uh, the people of God uh, in our time. Uh, Now, I think uh, God has been very kind to church at night. Generally speaking, um, I think we're doing very well and uh, we're very united uh, with one another. And so keep it up. 
But at the same time, some of you are old enough to know that our church has known great visions in the past. And I wonder whether if we are really honest that now with things like favoritism, speaking lies and deceptions and half-truths to one another to make ourselves look better, and jealousy, and uh, other things that divide us as a church. Now, is that true? Uh, Is that true of you as it is of me? Can you think of times when you've reacted in these ways uh, to other people in church, uh, knowing that uh, we are part of one family? Uh, It's not a pretty picture of church, and it's certainly not the sort of picture that we want to present outsiders. But I think it's worth saying because uh, when you see uh, you know, divisions and quarrels and sinfulness in the church, uh, I reckon uh, lots of people react in one of two ways. Uh, the first way is that lots of people become very critical and negative uh, toward the church itself. Uh, never mind my own sins, it's the church uh, who is at fault and I'm going to be critical and negative towards them. Or secondly, uh, some people end up leaving church together wanting nothing to do with Christians. Have you uh, seen people uh, who do this? What do you do when you see such deep divisions and problems in the church? Well, uh, if we come back to the the family of Jacob, uh, what is clear is that if this family is going to uh, be saved and be united together uh, as one family, as God's family, well, they need a leader, don't they? And uh, I think you can see a hint of this in verse 1. Because if you have a look at verse 1, this family is presented as a family that is clearly directionless and leaderless. Uh, in, in the thick of the crisis of the famine, notice what Joseph says to his sons. He says, why do you look at one another? It's as though they're, they're looking at one another, not knowing what to do. No one's taking the lead. No one's actually directing this family where it needs to go because there is no leader among them. However, uh, if you've been a careful reader of Genesis up until this point, uh, you will have noticed that there are significant hints that in this family there is going to emerge a leader or a king amongst them. Uh, You can see this, for example, in what God says to Jacob uh, all the way back in chapter 35, verse 11. In chapter 35, verse 11, uh, it says, uh, God says uh, in that chapter to Jacob these words. He says, A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. Uh, You can also see it in chapter 37, which we've already seen, where Joseph has his two dreams about his family. And remember, he has uh, dreams about his his brothers and his family bowing down to him. Uh, In chapter 37, verse 8, when when Joseph tells his brothers about his dreams, uh, this is what they say to him. They say, are you, Joseph, are you indeed the, the one to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? You see, that's kingship-type language, isn't it? But the astonishing thing is that in God's providence, uh, not Jesus, uh, Joseph does become the king 
doesn't he? If you remember from last week, he, be, he becomes second in command only to Pharaoh. But do you remember what Pharaoh gives to him when he becomes second in, in, in command? Um, in chapter 41, verse 42, you can see there that Pharaoh gives Joseph, it's coming up on the screen, Pharaoh gives to Joseph a signet ring. Uh, he, he clothes him in garments of fine linen. Uh, and he gives him a gold chain around his neck. And he gives him a chariot. Now, I know that technically Joseph is second in command to, to Pharaoh, but this is Genesis speak for this is the king. This is the ruler. And uh, what do we see next? Well, we see the brothers coming to Egypt, and we see the brothers coming to bow before this king, this ruler. You see, this king is the only one and the only hope of this sinful and this dysfunctional uh, family being saved and being united together uh, as one family. And uh, this king is the one who is going to do whatever it takes to make this come about. And so uh, you can see there that Joseph embarks upon an audacious plan for his family. And there are a number of things he does. Uh, firstly, you can see in verse 7 that uh, Joseph begins to speak roughly with his brothers. Uh, now, some people suggest that he's speaking roughly here because he's wanting to get back at his brothers. But uh, I think what's happening here is uh, this is Joseph's way of getting information out of his brothers about whether his family, his father and his brother are still alive in Egypt. But secondly... Do you see in verse 9 that Joseph begins to accuse his brothers of being foreign spies? Uh, and I think this is just a brilliant plan because what Joseph is doing here is he's concocting up a plan to send his brothers back to Canaan and bring his family uh, to uh, Egypt so that in the end they will be saved and uh, united together. Uh, now friends, uh, that's the external threat dealt with. But there is still the internal threat, isn't there? There is still this internal threat of deep divisions within the family. And I think the crisis point comes in verse 7, when Joseph's brothers come before Joseph. And uh, did you notice that uh, while Joseph recognises his brothers, his brothers don't actually recognise him. Now, I don't know what you would do if you were in Joseph's shoes, but if you've ever had an enemy who has ever done anything bad to you, uh, this is the sort of thing that kind of makes your heart race, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, can you imagine uh, you know, if you became one of the most powerful people on the planet and you saw your enemies come before you, not recognising who you are? Uh, the closest I could come to an illustration um, of this is an episode of Undercover Boss. Uh, I don't know whether you've seen an episode of Undercover Boss before, but uh, it's a show that works because there is a gap in knowledge, isn't there? Uh, the boss knows who his employees are, but the employees have no idea. And so while the boss is around, uh, he can actually observe uh, uh, all the bad things about his employees. Perhaps they're stealing from the till. 
uh, perhaps they're bad-mouthing the boss uh, in front of him. Um, They can be doing a number of disgraceful things until the very end when the boss reveals himself and uh, gets the chance for revenge. How tempting would it have been for Joseph to get his revenge on his brothers? However, friends, here is where we begin to get a little bit of a glimpse as to what this king is really like. Uh, This is what I think this chapter is all about. For in verse 21, it seems like the brothers are slowly coming to their senses because in verse 21, you can see there that they admit their guilt about what they did to Joseph those many years ago. Uh, One commentator says that often when God puts uh, his people in crisis situations, uh, we are forced to confront our past wrongs. Uh, Perhaps that's what's happening here. Indeed, Reuben thinks that what is happening to the brothers is uh, a reckoning for the blood of their brother. However, the astonishing thing about this kid is that rather than taking his revenge, notice what he does. He understands what they are saying and he turns aside and he begins to weep with uh, compassion. Can you see uh, just how wonderful a king this really is? A compassionate king. A soft-hearted king who longs to forgive. Now, reconciliation and unity uh, for this particular family is still a a long way off, and uh, we'll see in the next uh, weeks how things unfold with this family. But here is a king who is committed to the unity of his family and the transformation of his brothers so that they might be his people. Uh, in his world. Now, uh, what does that mean for us? Well, uh, I think uh, you've probably worked this out already, but I think that what we see here in the person of Joseph is a little bit of a glimpse uh, at our king, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Joseph is meant to point us uh, to our great king and saviour. For just like Joseph, Jesus is the king who is absolutely committed to saving his people and uniting them and transforming them so that they might be his family in his world. In fact, he is so committed to saving us that out of his compassion, uh, he gives up his very own life on the cross for those who have treated him so badly. And he unites us to be with him and with one another. Uh, In our New Testament reading this morning, Paul is able to say about two groups of people in the church who were once at odds with one another and uh, uh, fighting with one another and deeply suspicious of one another, he's able to say these words. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, or in this King, the Lord Jesus Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, 
and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. And friends, our king is so powerful that he is even able to use the external threats uh, in our lives, the difficult circumstances that, that come across our path, whatever they may, they, they may be, uh, and turn them around for the good of those who love him. And he continues to rule over us by his word, uh, sometimes speaking gently with us, and sometimes like Joseph, speaking roughly with us, but all the while doing it in order to mould his family into one so that we can be a people who can trust one another and serve one another and love one another as his people. Uh, I don't know how you feel about church. Uh, I was reading a book this week about church and uh, uh, what uh, these authors observed uh, from speaking to many people. And uh, this is what they, they observed. They say, uh, Many church insiders have a negative impression of church. They feel personally wounded or let down by church. They find the church legalistic, oppressive, hurtful. The leaders are controlling, the people are phony, and the ministry is programmed to, to death. The church is just another club protecting its own and laying down a bunch of rules that only instill a sense of self, self-loathing and a fruitless desire to be good enough for God. Many in the church family silently or not so silently, feel like Sunday services are a drag. The sermons are fluffy and uninspiring. Uh, Come and speak with me uh, later, if uh, that's you. Uh, And the the music is prepackaged. The whole thing is, for some, a big, repetitive, soul-shriveling show. Who needs it? Uh, I hope you're not as negative as that, but perhaps that reflects uh, some of what we can think sometimes. I think to some degree we've all experienced hurt and division in the church, uh, not only as victims, mind you, but as perpetrators as well. But there is something wonderful about knowing uh, that our king is a king who is committed to the salvation and the unity and the transformation of this group of people. He's transforming those who truly belong to him to love and serve others in the church so that we might be built up in unity. Uh, now, I think it, you know, uh, speaking about unity and uh, serving and loving and uh, that sort of thing is all good in the abstract, and I'm sure we won't, uh, we won't disagree uh, with that. But it's much harder to actually put it into practice, isn't it? It's much harder to go and speak to that person who's been at church for many years but we have just ignored for all that time. Uh, It's much harder to go and make peace with somebody who uh, either wittingly or unwittingly has hurt us in some way. Uh, It's much harder to speak God's word uh, to those who we see as failing in some way in their Christian lives rather than being critical of them and being deeply suspicious of them. But our king is much better than our failings and much bigger than our failings and is able to transform us more and more into the kind of family that he wants us to be. Uh, In this book that I was telling you about, I love how 
the author ends uh, the book. He says, There are many people leaving the church and supposedly finding God. But I found him here, he says. And by his grace, I'll keep on finding him here, in church. I love my church. Um, I hope uh, that we can see just how committed uh, Christ is to this church and that we would be able to, uh, like this person, uh, love and serve and help one another to keep on growing. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. Uh, We thank you especially for our Lord Jesus. Uh, Thank you that like Joseph, who saved and united his family, uh, Jesus has saved us and united us to himself and to one another as his body. Uh, Father, we confess that we are deeply sinful people by nature. Uh, We are often divided rather than united. Uh, We are often uh, don't love uh, and serve each other uh, in the ways that we should. But we thank you that our king is committed to our good and to the unity of our church family. Father, if there are any among us who are currently experiencing hurt or disappointment with others at church, Uh, We pray that you would grant them the grace to forgive and be reconciled to that brother or sister. Uh, We pray that if there are any among us who are negative or overly critical of your people, the church, then you would help them to repent. Uh, For we know that our king uh, is committed to his church and to his family. And so please help us to be a family that delights in loving and serving one another and celebrating what our King is doing in and through and amongst us as we hold out the word of life to one another in this darkened world and to others around us. For we pray this in in Jesus' name. Amen.